0: How do you find a good new owner for a keeper league? Or how do you keep the good old owners? I'll talk with Peter Kreutzer from Patton Co. com, the Ask Rotoman blog, ToutWars.com, and the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine. And he's next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. Ah. And
0: here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist patrick davitt and welcome to baseball hq radio for tuesday march the 29th it's show number 11 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season i am patrick davitt your host and we do have another great tuesday tout edition for you we'll have our feature interview with peter kreutzer discussing how to manage keeper leagues and their owners his tout wars national league only auction his boons and banes and more it's another big Tuesday Tout Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, our feature expert interview with Peter Kreutzer from PatentandCo.com, the AskRotoMan blog, ToutWars.com, and the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine. Peter, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Hi there, Patrick. Glad to be here.
0: I usually start these uh, interviews by asking how many drafts you've played so far this year, and how many more do you have to come.
1: If I'm counting right, I've been in three so far—two drafts and one auction—and I have um, two more auctions to come. That's if I'm remem- remembering correctly. Uh, there's and not forgetting, and I've played in a bunch of mocks for the magazine and for other other places, so they all kind of—I uh, could be off by one or two. <laughs>
0: You know, you probably have too many drafts, when you literally can't count or keep track of them.
1: <laughs> uh, I haven't yet written down the the schedule of when the moves are made for each of them, so it's, I, haven't oh, done nice. I haven't done an audit yet of my drafts.
0: Yeah, I actually I still don't know when our moves start. And there's a, I mean, only three, but well, one of them is like draft and hold. So the first one is I think in mid-April. There's only uh, two or three moves all year that you that if you can do fab, uh, but the other two, tout and uh, the great fantasy baseball invitation will have weekly moves and for the first little while they're not doing it on Sundays they're doing it midweek because we won't get everybody up to speed for opening day and that kind of thing so I'm gonna have to go dig around and find out when I can actually make moves and I'm going on a trip on uh, Thursday I'll be flying down to the DR and uh, like sitting on a beach somewhere and probably not that interested in making fantasy baseball moves so I (laughs) I want to get them uh, sorted out and put in before uh, before I go so whether in your own drafts or following the coverage in the media, what have you seen this draft season that you think has been surprising or maybe presents an opportunity that some fantasy managers haven't thought about? What's been new and unusual?
1: Well, I th- think the, the biggest thing is just the onslaught of information that's in the compressed spring training, the signings, the who's on what team um keeping track of of it all and and um and figuring out who's who's actually playing um in situations I'll, my one of my uh, picks later is Jonathan VR, and but he's in a team that has a shortstop an all-star fielding shortstop and a, and a good hitting and running middle infielder guy and and another third baseman and uh i i think i know how it's going to work out but um, figuring it all out on every team is is a challenge and i think that's that's going to be the uh the mission that is going to make a lot of good teams or bad teams this year keeping tr- keeping up with it
0: it is more difficult this year because of the compressed time frame. Ordinarily, we would have had a few weeks of spring training and all the news or far, false news that comes out of those those enterprises. But then we would have had spring training games, and, and there's a rhythm to them. And as you get up to opening day, you think, well, now it seems that second base situation has been resolved in favor of player X or player Y. And of course... It often doesn't apply to some of the drafts that we're in because they're so far in advance of even that, that it's it's a bit of a crapshoot. But as we get closer to opening day and the traditional period for, for drafting, it seems like you're right that there's so much information pouring out now, and it's still half of its, you know, best shape of his life type news that the that the players <laughs> give us or the manager saying this guy looks great out there, you know, and but it doesn't actually mean anything. It's very tough. In all your drafts, how are you managing the onslaught?
1: Well, I, I the, the best thing I can do is I keep track of my um, my my uh, player evaluation software, and I try it and I update it before any draft or auction that I'm doing, or we put out, um, Alex Patton and I put out software and that's updated weekly. So I make sure every, every Wednesday it's complete. And, um, and then you can only work off of what you've got. And, uh, I think something that I, I saw in the, the Tao Wars auction was, and, and I'm, I'm getting a sense from some of the other, um, industry league auctions that people are spending their money a little bit earlier and they're buying, big hitters and they're not worrying about running out of money for the little players partly because of expanded rosters they'll have 28 players for the first month and um, and certainly more than 25 for the for the rest of the season and uh, so it's even in an AL or NL only league it's a it, the pool is a little bit deeper same thing with the DH in the in the National League that makes the, the hitting a little bit deeper in the in the National League
0: well we'll talk in a few minutes about your National League labor draft. You had some approaches in there that I wanted to discuss with you. But uh, the tout drafting season is finished. Uh, what did you see in this season's drafts that might present an opportunity just from the point of view of the leagues that tout runs?
1: Uh, I it's kind of it's kind of the same um, the same bag of, of tricks in in Taut wars. The that's where I, I mean I noticed in the al and the NL the more more teams and in and then mixed auction as well teams top loading not really teams not necessarily going stars and scrubs but getting more top players and not worrying about running out and spending a dollar for the last five or six players or in my tout draft it was like the last 11 at uh, 11
0: one dollar players you had
1: no, no, I had $16 for 11 players. So oh, it,
0: still, right <laughs> that's not a lot. A lot of $1 players.
1: A lot of navigation going on there.
0: I noticed in the Tout American League draft, in which I participated, that there seemed to be a devil-take-the-hindmost approach to closers, where in past years, you kind of had your two $23 guys who were locked in no doubt about the role, no doubt about the performance, and then there's a couple of those, and then down there a tier, there'd be some $18, 19 guys, then down a tier, there'd be a few $12 guys, where the roles are somewhat questionable or the skills are somewhat questionable. But this draft, the top six closers, all 22 or 23 bucks.
1: That's, um That seems extreme, but I guess the role is, um, the, the role, when everybody was kind of thought to be a closer an actual closer had the job. You could tear them off by how many strikeouts they threw so that the top strikeout guys would go in the low twenties, low to mid twenties, the lesser guys would, and that would follow down to 10 where the, like the closer for the Orioles would be. But the, um, but now there's, there's maybe six or seven guys who actually might look like, feel like closers right now. And then you have situations like, Seattle where who who knows what's going to happen there it's um, there's just so many possibilities that um, and yet you can't go $2 on those guys so they all go for six or eight or something and um, it's 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 an interesting mess.
0: And beyond that, there's also teams that do have a closer, but nobody likes them. As you're going into draft, like like Trevino in in Oakland jumps to mind. Like everybody kind of assumes he's going to have the role, but nobody wants a guy who's just really not that good of a pitcher. Right,
1: right, yeah, no, it's it's, um, yeah, similar situations in in uh, in Texas and Kansas City. A little people like that guy a little bit better, but. of of the Barlows. Yeah. uh, But, but I mean, I don't really think you can, uh, you can be confident about any of them. They're all, they're all provisional.
0: I think over time, it seems like there's going to be a real divide between, teams that have those liam hendricks type guys or josh Hader type guys and teams that don't and the teams that don't are increasingly going to go with bullpen by committee or you know situational matchups leverage matchups even in the case of tampa bay arm angle matchups and arm angle sequencing and stuff like that and uh Do you think that leagues at some point are going to have to start thinking about altering the category rules when we're talking about rotisseries, uh, rotisserie style leagues with categories, are we going to have to have to finally do something about the saves category to throw in holds or to throw in some kind of uh, leverage measure or something like that to prevent the complete misvaluing of top level actual closers?
1: Yeah, a lot of leagues are moving to adding going to holds and saves or um, to McLeod's suggestion, which is saves plus half holds, um, which gives still gives more value to the save, but recognizes that those those middle relievers who get holds contribute more value than and and that they also become it it just lessens the the, um, importance of the of the role uh of closer which is very all or nothing at any any given moment um i don't like that particularly because it it just means that it's not this constant like there is no closer and holds monkey it's um like the, the closing closing has always been in the history of the of this sport this game cl- who the closer is has always been the question that everybody's everybody's always asked everybody everybody when i was writing ask rotoman for espn in the middle of the 90s it was that was the question that came up more often than who's the closer and this and this who's the closer and um i think we'll miss that a little bit but the way that major league bullpens are um mutating and the, and the the way that the managers are handling them is definitely changing the way we have to we should be playing the the fantasy game
0: I agree with you, but I think it's how we should be playing it rather than a need to change the rules. I see a lot of guys on Twitter and stuff, and I, my opinion is, okay, so saves are now no longer being concentrated in the hands of a few guys in the league, and we all have to try to guess who those are and throw in you know $23 in auction to try to get one of them. It really seems like it's an opportunity to re-strategize how you approach the game if you think, well, there's going to be three guys on every team who get 10 to 15 that's a much bigger pool to draw from, and a much more, um, a much more granular opportunity to price them, instead of it being a, a pure all-or-nothing situation, as you mentioned.
1: That's that was what I was trying to say. Because I mean, I think in situations like Cleveland, where um, Karinczak is was supposed to be the closer last year, and he could easily he earned closer-type money this year. Without saving a whole lot of games, and and could still end up with a bunch of still end up with some saves, but earn the money with strikeouts and with um and with a good whip and ERA. There's a middle in there are middle relievers every year who um, earn twenty dollars. Devin Williams a couple of years ago, you know, was a twenty dollar earner in the in the NL only with I with maybe no saves or maybe or just a few. Um, so. I, I agree completely that um, we, if, if when you add holds, you diminish the value of the saves, and you also diminish the um, the value of the, the guys who earn who don't who, who are just pitching really well and, and earn holds. That makes them even more valuable than, than closers some, in some cases. Um, so I'm, I, I agree with you.
0: I think Josh Hader also, when he was uh, he was a setup guy, and he earned a big pile of of money based on strikeouts. And of course, the other angle on relief pitching and the thing that makes should make them interesting is if you get the right setup, especially in a team like Tampa, where not a lot of guys go deep into games as as starters. There's an awful lot of wins out there up for grabs. Uh, somebody told me recently that more than half of the pitcher wins last year went to relievers, not to starters. And I think it was the first time in history. So maybe there's a, a chance to better understand and better exploit the values of relief pitchers across the board when there's f- much less value concentrated in the saves. Although m- much like a situation where you might want to concentrate on guys who hit lots of home runs, it's not an exact analogy, maybe stolen bases is a better analogy, if there's an opportunity to acquire a player like Miles Straw, who really is a one-category contributor, maybe a little bit of run scored and those kinds of things, he's fairly analogous to a top-dollar closer. And maybe that's just an advantage to all of us or an opportunity for all of us to consider, again, how we're doing our valuations and how we're deciding to allocate our financial resources at draft. To try to maximize the whole roster, do you get a a, a bunch of smaller guys for four bucks each? who are going to compile saves, like some people suggest with stolen bases, or are you going to go big or go home with the with the big guy? And there's risk management in there as well. It's I think it's more interesting. I
1: I totally agree. I totally agree that the, the adding holes is a is an equalizer. It makes it, it makes many more relief pitchers valuable, and um, even if they valuable even if they don't have great strikeout rates and don't have great um ERAs and, and ratios. So I I'm, I'm with you on that. I think we should play it the way the it, play it the way it is, which we've talked about it in Tower wars for a number of years now and I and um I think some people push but it's uh I think we're we're sticking with saves for the time being
0: the other thing about holds is that as a as a statistic it really is not that great you know people complain they say oh saves are so opportunistic and they rely on the situation and even if the guy pitches bad he can get one and you think to yourself well that's exactly what a save is you know it's just a it's an it's an abstraction that some guy invented. I think it was Jerome Holtzman back in the day, uh, just came up with it out of out of left field because he wanted to reward guys, and I think Rollades maybe wanted to get an award going for for guys like that, and that's how they decided to quantify it. Uh, I think that holds would become valuable, even though intrinsically they're not that valuable. And then how do you how do you structure in blown holds is there such a thing as a blown hold or does everybody get a blown save Uh, to me it's a nightmare i was going to ask you about how tout wars is looking at this because you're on the leadership committee of tout wars along with ron chandler and todd zola and brian walton and jeff erickson and you guys part of your job or part of your remit is every year you sit down and you look at all the rules and you say is it Time to change this rule. What are what are those conversations like, and what are you guys looking at in making the determination? And maybe you could use the example of when you guys went to the Swingman in the only leagues, or uh, some other recent rules change.
1: Yeah, we went to um, we we try to balance the um, our role as a demonstration league and um, having rules that are relatable to other leagues to also taking leadership positions on things that we think are good ideas and also trying, like the major leagues do in AAA, let's say, by moving the second base a little closer to home plate. Um, (laughs) um, We try to to also be innovative and and try out things that we think might work or or not work. So um, with the swing man, we had the – there was – there was nobody on waivers, and, and people were complaining about um, the problem of their just being – major league pitching staffs had gotten bigger and, the, and there were fewer offensive, hit, offensive um, bench guys. And we looked at um, either adding a pitcher or subtracting a hitter and decided instead to go with something that was a little more strategic and allowed people to try different paths to get to their best team. And and that's how we got to the swing man, um, which is just a second utility player who can be either a hitter or a pitcher, kind of like the Otani of of uh, the Tower Wars roster. Um, and we've, the, uh, we the uh, we we started a a, a new um, twelve team mixed draft league last year, and with the idea of having. Um, experimental rules, which one of them I think is saves and holds if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, I, sorry, I actually don't remember which, what we, what we went with there. And I always get confused One, I think we replaced wins with innings pitched or strikeouts. Anyway, there's a couple of experimental things there. People who played in the league last year liked them. Um, but we don't really have any, I don't think we're, there's much interest in, um, in moving them over to the more mainstream leagues, the AL and the NL or the 15 team draft, um, because those are demonstration leagues for a lot of leagues. On the other hand, I, 10, 12 years ago, we we changed batting average to on-base percentage. The process there was different. On-base percentage is just, we think, better than batting average and, um, and we think everybody should be playing that way i mean we're not telling anybody that they have to but we, we just think it's it's a it's a better measure and it, and it balances the hitter hitter walks mat measure equal pitcher walks and and that makes that part of the scoring which is a good thing
0: i completely agree uh, i think every league should be you know base percentage and if they made me the czar of all fantasy baseball I, that would be my first edict because as you said pitcher gets issues a walk that's bad batter gets a walk it's of no consequence and that just seems uh, imbalanced in some way um you mentioned peter the uh, change in major league baseball's roster structures not and i'm not talking about the expansion to 28 or 26 because of covid and and all of the stuff that has transpired recently but just in general the the big league teams seem to be committed to an, uh, to much fewer hitters on their rosters and much more pitchers because they want to do matching up more. And I don't uh, maybe understand why they don't want to have as many hitters to counter that, but apparently they don't. Has any thought been given beyond the swing man to just readjusting the 23-man roster so it more accurately uh, represents the more or less 50-50 or even 47-53 that we now see in Major League Baseball?
1: I don't recall that in that league we've talked um, specifically about adding, I mean, we talked about it at the time of the swing man, about it perhaps adding a, a pitcher. Um i don't think we've talked about it then i play in um in another league where we um went to ten pitchers a few years ago and we and we've moved to eleven pitchers this year because for that very reason um one thing that was happening with going with nine pitchers was the um there was always what Steve moyer used to call the fungible reliever who was who you could roster at any time and there was always somebody out there who was an easy ad um, not necessarily terribly valuable, but not probably not going to kill you unless you were really unlucky. And, um, and adding 12 more pitchers meant there were that many fewer of those types of guys. And it, and it definitely made the waivers claims harder and made it more increased the chances of teams trading of talking about making those types of strategic moves rather than, um, so, it, that I think that was successful. It doesn't change the player values too much because it's they're one dollar players basically, and um, and I, I, that was a successful move. But we haven't talked about doing that in Tel Wars yet.
0: I know that uh, one of the good things about Tout Wars uh, in participating in Tell Wars, especially, is you guys are very welcoming of suggestions or um, people who play saying to you guys, maybe we should consider this particular rule change because it's affecting the playability of the game, uh, and not just uh, not just the uh, the wants or or. Um, theories of of some of the guys who play it 's definitely affecting the playability of the only leagues when after the draft is over and the reserve round is over, there are literally no hitters in the free agent pool anymore, except for well, all third catchers, catchers. And, <laughs> yeah c- catchers that you really most of the time you look at him and you say i 'll take the empty slot because this guy 's going to you know get enough plate appearances at a uh, you know 229 on base percentage that he's actually going to hurt my team more than I'm going to miss his two home runs and nine RBIs over the time that if that over the time he's on so uh, I I remember bringing up the idea of rebalancing the rosters and you guys did think about it and ultimately decided not to and I I suspected at the time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was because you were taking seriously the fact that there are still lots of leagues out there that are playing traditional rules, and if we get too far afield from what they're doing, we lose relevance to what they're doing, and then that they, they're less interested in tout wars, which defeats the purpose.
1: Well, that, that is definitely a consideration. Um, and partly it's the, the interest of the touts as well. If they play in a league that is too odd, they can't really write about it in the context of their work and talk about it, um, which also defeats the purpose. And, um, we had a situation like that when we started the head-to-head league, which was six or seven years ago. And um, I thought it would be a great idea to make some improvements to the head-to-head game and the way scoring was done and, we tried a few th- things for the first few years, and got some got a lot of complaints from some people, and um, and a lot of a lot of the scoring type complaints were mostly about um, moving to point scoring and using a regular point scoring system that like the majors use because it it turns out, and I wasn't really cognizant of this at the beginning. I don't think any of us were, because we're on the, the on the board. We're all we're, we're not really head to head players. But the game is now head-to-head is the most popular category, the category of game most popular fantasy baseball games, head-to-head, and um, and the and the three platforms that Fantrax and CBS and Yahoo and ESPN for, are, you know, heads and shoulders above in users playing that game. So um, a couple of years ago, we switched over to using the regular scoring and going with that the winner of the league each year could choose what scoring system was used the next year. Ariel Cohn won it. He chose and chose CBS. And then, uh, um, the winner last year works for CBS. So it was, um, uh, it's Frank Stapfel, I think is, is, is that right?
0: That sounds that, right. Yeah.
1: Is that, I'm pronouncing that right. Um, anyway, the, so we may, it may end up being CBS forever, but it's, uh, but that, is, that was the kind of decision that you were talking about that we, that we made to make the games relevant for um, the, both the touts and the people who follow them.
0: The only points game I play is in the, uh, the Raz Slam Invitational where it's uh, uh, on the NFBC platform. And I wonder when you look across the... I would count NFBC as another platform unless it scores the same as one of the previous four that you mentioned. But with all these different variations on the head-to-head points, how easy is it to just come up with a a, a rationale to say here's what we're doing and it kind of averages all the rest or do you just tie your wagon to one of the other four? How did that work?
1: Basically, the first year that we went to points, I um, pulled the members of the league and asked them what they favored and they sent me different suggestions and then I tried to find a balance. I found the frustrating thing with um, head-to-head is that it's it's so much about Two, uh, two start weeks and and piling on in different ways that are antithetical to regular roster major league roster construction. Although maybe in the major leagues we're going that way with all these relievers. Um, that I think that we're. Uh, I tried to find a fusion approach that gave real value to, to real starters and real damage to bad starters, like the that the bad starters who. They didn't just run up accumulative totals. But it turns out nobody really likes the getting hurt by having a Wade LeBlanc start. So they um so the the, the main games are pretty generous in terms of rewarding bulk. And they and they have little penalties built in for walks and for things. And um, and they people like those games. I mean they and they can follow them and they understand what's happening. So that's that's the way we went.
0: It seems like game construction in a lot of instances is when you're talking about the commercial platforms is based on uh, fantasy football and how easy it is to, to run your team. You know, you have to make your moves every week, but it's not like playing rotisserie baseball where you're poring over statistics every week and going on a player by player thing versus through baseball savant to get all their Statcast data and stuff it's it's a lot easier than that and i think the people who run games for money like it being easy because easy keeps people going and they don't get frustrated with it or think i can't even understand how this point system works and it's very fluke fluky in, in some instances so that's a problem but Something you said raises a question for me, and I'm curious on what you say. I ask this of a lot of our experts. To what degree is a fantasy baseball format or fantasy baseball itself supposed to be representative or similar to the operations of a real major league front office? And to what degree is it just supposed to be some fun way to approximate the front office goings on? but basically just you could have any kind of rules you want as long as it bears a superficial resemblance.
1: It's a, it's a great question because in the early days of the game, we had no, I absolutely no idea how to predict how players were going to do or how to value the categories, the stats and rotisserie baseball nobody knew. And, and everything was, was kind of wild. And over the, through the 1980s, people kept, coming up with different ways of doing it and figuring out how to value um, players. So and the, so in a way, the game went from people who didn't know what they were doing, trying to do make a major league baseball team, to people realizing that it was much more about the gameplay, figuring out how the game worked and how you could use the information that you had to maximize your results in the game. And that became... Um, something that I used to write all the time was it's not baseball. <laughs> Rotisserie baseball is not baseball. It's a different set of uh, judgments that you have to make and a different set of decisions. On the other hand, I think if we stray too far from the, the, um, the shape of the, of the big league baseball um, that we lose a little bit of the, um, we lose a little bit of the relationship and in and, Dan Okrant in creating the four by four categories came up with an amazingly good simulation of the approximation, let's say of the skills that you need to have on a baseball team to um, get good results and doing well in those categories is mirrored what would happen in in major league baseball. I I used to do a thing where I'd rank the major league teams on the, on the rotisserie categories and it would, it wasn't always the, exactly right, but it was pretty close, and um, and that it, it would it would be too bad to lose that. So um, the funny thing is that a lot of leagues go, have gone to six by six, and I get a lot of questions about people who say, "Oh, I play in a twelve by twelve league," and I've never played in a twelve by twelve league, but I can't I can't believe that it does a better job of approximating um, what the skills are than five by five. The five by five we settled on. More um, recently, with on-base percentage,
0: I did that too when I started out at baseballhq.com. I remember doing uh, sitting at my dining room table, and I had an old 386 computer to do the spreadsheet work, and uh, you know, I practically set it alight by trying to run you know, <laughs> twenty-column by ninety-row uh, spreadsheets, and the, the thing would just quit because it just couldn't handle that monumental amount of data. And I remember that finding out when I did the same thing that you talked about, that all of the categories were actually pretty good at getting to what created a winning major league team, except stolen bases. Stolen bases literally had nothing to do with it. You could finish first or last, it didn't matter. The other four categories were very uh, indicative of performance, but stolen bases simply didn't matter. And I went to my league that I was playing in, and I showed them these data, and I said, you know, stolen bases don't matter. Why don't we just stop having them and saves while we're at it because all saves are is a reflection of wins, basically, Right. And uh, they just looked at me like I had come in and suggested that we just abandon baseball altogether and go to High or something to, to, to determine how we were going to play the game. And they all said, no, we know what these categories are. We understand that stolen bases are worthless, but they have value in this game, even if they don't have value in that game. And as you said, a lot of people seem to realize the two games are not exactly the same, and that's by design. Uh,
1: by design and inevitable, I would say as well.
0: There are some formats, I can't think of any offhand, but I remember there was one years ago where they built the simulation so that it was much more focused on what actually did make a, a front office successful in baseball. And one of the, I mean, there was like, they were negotiating TV contracts and they were pricing concessions and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But the, the point of the game was to amass the most dollars which you did mostly by, because they tied it to wins. The more, the more your team won, the likelier you were to up com- compile attendance and attendance led to money and, and bigger TV audiences and so forth. So there was that tie in and it was really well done. It was a really good simulation. And I think they ran it for maybe two years and everybody said, it's too hard. You know, I don't, I don't play these games so I can come home from my office work and then repeat my office work for this thing. So. No, thanks. And then uh, there are other formats. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, AutoNew over at uh, Rotographs, but that seems to have made a a, uh, real solid effort at trying to increase the verisimilitude of what's going on. And there are lots of people who play it, but I don't think there's nearly as many who play it that play the more traditional formats. Have you tried it or do you know anything about it?
1: I haven't. I haven't tried it. I talked to Eno about it. He wrote something for the magazine um, a number of years ago. I talked to. I found a lot of people who had played a lot of different formats and had them each write a little thing about what made their format special and good. And um, and he made it seem very uh, very appealing. And but it's. I I was. um, I've been in too many leagues for like for thirty years. So it's. uh, It's um, I I was not I was not I I will say I was tempted, but I I was able to hold off. You made me think of, uh, you know, people maybe stop playing that game because they realize that the way to make the real money is to lock the players out.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's that, and you know, I don't know, I don't remember if there was a place in there to go and uh, you know coerce the taxpayers into building you a stadium for free. All of those kind of niceties that are on the financial side of things, or or to be make friends with the commissioner so that you get a team at half price uh, in a very lucrative franchise area, and all of those kind of things, I don't know whether they played a role or not. Uh, but the the key point, I think, is there are formats for people who want to devote an awful lot of time to figuring out the very tiny little moves that you can make, the little levers you can pull. But most people who play don't want that. They What they want to do is have some kind of game that kind of reflects the box score so they can just look through the box score the next day or the highlights now, I guess, more on streaming or ESPN or something and see, oh, my guy hit a home run. Good for me. That'll help. you know. And less to say well, yeah, my guy got a a stolen base, but that shouldn't count so much. Or his guy, even more worse, that guy got a lot of stolen bases and it shouldn't count so much. So it's it's kind of a balancing act. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from uh, Ask Rotoman and from Tout Wars, a bunch of other places we'll talk about later. You were in the Labor National League draft earlier this month, I think a week or so ago. Was it live or online? It was online. Still doing online, and uh, we're hoping to get back next year, I know, for Tout.
1: We're hoping to get back this year, but a lot of people said they didn't want to fly into the city. Things are pretty good here now. We probably could have done it, but people would have had to commit when they weren't comfortable. So hopefully next year.
0: Tristan Cockroft's recap at ESPN, he touched on the situation of uh, what he called knowing the room. It's a pretty common thing in poker too. Uh, almost all the league managers had been in the league for many years, including you, although I think you were two years or so out doing something else uh, at that time in a different league, but you're back in it now. So you have this situation where almost everybody in the league has been in it for many, many years. And this is a situation that a lot of home league managers are in, of course. What's your take on how important it is to know the room and what, what it does for the draft and for the game?
1: There, there were things that came up that um, I, th- things that if I was a better scout, I would have known Gray Albright has been pushing Suzuki and uh, at, at Rasball And, and um, he pushed him all the way to $29 in the, in the tout NL auction. He's a player that I do know is a player who takes, goes for the guys he wants and will pay whatever price. He doesn't worry about his budget too much in, at, at that. And, um, in, the, in the, my story about um, Jacob deGrom, he was the second player nominated, Tristan is, I think, pretty reliably bids up a big pitcher at the beginning and he bid 30 on deGrom and I, we were drafting online and the software allows you to either push a button to go up one or to put in a number. And I put in 34 as my number that I was going to try and get to before anybody else got to. And I thought I could push plus one, but I might immediately get beat by two other people who pushed plus one and end up having to go 35 or 36. So I pushed 34, and um, I just so a, a four dollar jump bid, and I, and nobody raised me. So well, a little, conf- I was a little conflicted. Did I do the right thing, or did I blow a couple or three dollars? It's uh, there's no way to know. Um, I was perfectly happy to have to gr- to get the 34 and I and but partly I thought Tristan would for sure be going 35 and and that was um, it surprised me that he did
0: something about the plus one dollar bid we had the tout American League online and they have a they have a button that says add a dollar basically and you can click on that but what you have to be re- really wary of in that situation and I really wasn't is that if you press plus one when you're getting up to that area where you know the auction is going to end you have to be very concerned that your plus one isn't the last plus one that gets in there and gets buffered and i ended up with fran as an american league tout because i pressed plus one when it was at like 14 because i had set a 15 dollars maximum and I pressed plus one. But meanwhile, two other guys had also pressed plus one, and my plus one ended up at the t- trail end of the queue and went doo, 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 up to 18. And, and I was the schmuck holding on at 18. I didn't even know at first because I saw oh, somebody went 18, and I looked and realized it was me. So they're, they're, the technology can get in the way for sure. DeGrom for 34, it, you, it make, you make it sound like that was your ceiling on him. And had anybody gone 35, you're out.
1: No, no. If you if if somebody had gone thirty five, I would have gone thirty six. That was thirty six was my ceiling at that point. And I've had uh, conversations with a few different people. I, I mean, I'm seeing one trend that I discovered to, to my chagrin when the next pitcher was nominated was that all the pitchers in the in that NL auction were going for like two dollars, three dollars less than my bids, and my bids add up to the right budget so it's not it's there's a fundamental revaluation of the starting pitching in in that league at least but i there was a similar thing going on in labor and um i it's something that i'm going to look out for in my al auction which isn't for another uh 10 days but um it's a uh, it, it's um it was it was a surprising thing to me and um, and I think it's a change in the way people are approaching approaching the pitching because they so value the home run the big home run hitters and the big bangers they're willing to spend a lot for for those guys like in that league Juan Soto went up to 49 Suzuki at 29 those are those are major numbers for an NL only for a um, NL only league uh, for guys who don't Suzuki will run some, but it's not like a. It, and they both have good on-base percentages. Should have good on-base percentages, but they're still way over what they're going to what their earnings are in a normal year.
0: Forty-nine, especially goodness, and Suzuki. We don't know. I mean, he could be anything. I mean, Soto's going to obviously kick in eight to ten bags. I would suspect, but at forty-nine at. at At that point, you have to say this is unjustifiable. Obviously, whoever bid the 49 thought it was justifiable, and that's part of the way the game runs. You also rostered Fernando Tatis for $18, which is about half of what he would have gone for, I suspect, had he got into the start of the season without that injury. I read a lot in the run-up after the injury where people were saying you, you can can, and still should draft Tatis, but you got to get a discount. How did you calculate the discount and determine that at $18 he represented a value for you?
1: The, I, I just did the, the math. I, I thought he's a $42, $44 player, somewhere in there. If, if Soto's going to go for 49 he could have been a 48 or 49 dollar player but my calculation was he was like a 42 42 44 dollar player he he could miss half the year and i had him priced at 20 21 on my sheet i bid been 18 thinking that's a, that's an okay discount at that point and i and i got him um i'm not sure given the uh the injury risk Something goes wrong in the rehab. He he showed last year that he gets hurt a lot, but he also recovered a lot and played great when he when he played. So I, it's a it's it's risky. The Degrom is, I feel less risk about Degrom because he doesn't look like he's hurt anymore, and um, that is, yeah. I mean, he's only throwing ninety nine. So I mean, I will see. But it's uh, I, I feel like I got some injury discount. He'd be, he would have, he'd be a forty dollar player if he was. If everybody knew it. If he gets hurt, if Tatis doesn't come back. I'm, my, my team is going to struggle. But if they do, I have a. I, I'm doing okay. That's the situation we're all in every year. So we'll see.
0: Seems to me you're doing okay. If you say he's only throwing ninety nine, but I'm willing to take the risk. <laughs> Very big of you, I have to say. You also rostered uh, L A starter Julio Arias fairly early on what was the thinking there
1: that was i was just looking at the you know the little bargains like the burns coming into under two dollars under shurs are coming two dollars under and and urius got to two dollars under my price for him and um or three dollars under and i and i said I, I made a bid and and i got him so i thought it's that's not my usual approach, but I, it can't hurt to have two aces. And um, it, but it meant that I had to be really disciplined on the rest of the staff.
0: Down the draft a little bit, you got AJ Pollock for thirteen, which looked to me like a bargain. I know that there's some injury risk there, but uh, what was your thinking at this point of the draft? You were roughly halfway through.
1: Well, I was running out of out of money, so I was looking for guys who were, I was bidding on guys who I liked who were well under my price. And my price on Pollock was, I think, 18. Um, I bid and it stopped. One of the things that I mentioned, alluded to earlier, was that although those pitching prices were lower and and some of the hitting prices were much higher, the teams were really aggressive about loading up. So there was a a decided lack of money as we approached the end game. And um, I got there first but other people started running out of money and there were, you know, a lot of really good bargains at the end. So I'm happy to have um, Pollock at 11, but there were other guys who went, who were similarly under, undervalued and made me question. I I paid pretty much full for uh, Segura and uh, Uriah, Luis Urias. And, um, and that seemed like the right thing to do, given where, where we were and where I was, but I, I, And 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 may turn out to be that be fine, but it but there were some other names that came by later that um, were better bargains, and that are spread around the whole board. And that's the that's the fact of it is that um, those things once everybody runs out of money, everybody's a bargain.
0: Yeah, and there's always somebody in the draft who didn't spend money early and, and tries to clean up in that middle range. Uh, Larry Schechter used to do that all the time, and uh, a couple of other guys in Tout American League. Mike Podhorge was pretty famous for it as well. This year, Larry was like the the spending uh, maniac at the start of the draft. I think he got like eight out of the first 25 guys or something. It was, it was really quite something for Larry. You got Lorenzo Cain in the end game for three. That was about 60 nominations or so from the end of the draft. And along with Pollock, I was wondering if you were adopting a bit of the boring old veterans approach.
1: Well, I think it it, it ends up looking like that. It wasn't something that I said, "Oh, I'm going to get boring old veterans," but I um, I wasn't going. I wasn't going to pay up. I didn't have the money to pay up for shiny, bright baubles. Um, <laughs> I was. Uh, I. I um, I got, you know, some guys, I, Nico Horner for $2 was um, a little bit of a bauble for me. I mean, I think the, the questions between him and VR and where the playing time comes with the Simmons signing are legitimate. But for $2, for $7, those are, they're both power speed guys who will earn a lot more than that, even if they only get 350 at bats.
0: Well, you mentioned the, having to soft pedal the pitching after getting um, Degrom and Urias early on, and really near the end, you got four of these guys: Madison Bumgarner, David Price, Matt Boyd, and Danny Duffy—a a real passel of boring old veterans for a buck each. Was that by design, or again, was it just something that the way it turned out?
1: Well, it, it, when I got to being having $16 for 11 players, I started looking through the pitching ranks and seeing who I could pick off. And it was, I had um, a similar situation to you uh, with Lucas Sims, who I thought I was bidding $7 on, but I actually turned into a a plus one bonanza that cost $10 for me, which was more than I would have been paying. That was one of the things that got me into a little bit of trouble. Um, I started isolating those guys who, who are old, who um, have, who throw still throws some strikeouts and, and, uh, who have like with price has, a not as many strikeouts, but who might have a, a, starting spot part of the year at least. And I just try to find guys who I know can pitch and, and at those prices, I hope for the best. If one or two of them kicks in, I'm in good shape. Um, and if not,
0: you're in trouble. At a certain point, especially with the eruption in the number of pitchers who get into the free agent pool every year, these guys kind of fit that definition you mentioned earlier of fungible, which used to be applied to these relievers, but now increasingly it's being applied to sort of non 30 start starters. I- Uh, David Price has the advantage of pitching for a really good team and there's, that's not to be understated. And Matt Boyd, I thought was interesting because he moves to the San Francisco Giants who have developed, uh, I would say earned quite a reputation for getting the most out of boring old veterans.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was tickled that I, I, I was able to nominate him and get him. It was, uh, it was great. It was, it
0: was great. <laughs> I bet it was, yeah, because uh, sometimes you're on pins and needles because it comes your turn, you've only got a dollar, and you have to bid on someone. Either you hope somebody else will take them, but you don't want to get stuck with them, or you nominate them in the hope of getting them, and sometimes it works out that way. Jeez, uh, uh, Peter, this has been real interesting so far. Let's take a break. Uh, I've got to do a little business for Baseball HQ, and then we'll come back and finish the discussion. Okay, thanks. Peter Kreutzer writes at patentandco.com, the AskRotoMan blog, toutwars.com, and the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine. We'll have part two of his expert interview in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say baseballhq.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Patrick Davitt. Hey, I know that guy. He runs through the pivots of his recent ToutWars Wars AL-only auction. In Arsenal report, last year's breakout analyst at Baseball HQ, Tanner Smith, returns with a new edition of his report, looking at the pitch mixes of Pittsburgh right-hander Mitch Keller. And in the Batters Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand uses StatCast stats to look for draft day targets who might not be obvious on the surface, like Bobby Bradley and Brandon Nimmo and many more. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Facts and flukes, performance validation, roster news in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, pitchers, and relievers, the market pulse column, the big hurt column, and Fantasy Baseball Research. Also, you get all kinds of tools that you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and add it all up. They're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Peter Kreutzer's next, but right now this public service announcement. Baseball HQ is hiring. You want to be a fantasy baseball writer? Well, BaseballHQ.com is growing our team of not just writers, but analysts and other contributors for the 2022 season and beyond. We're willing to listen to any ideas you have, and we have opportunities for several specific existing roles. First, we need a playing time analyst. That's following a specific team or teams, allocating playing time, and preparing short notes on the fantasy effects of Major League Baseball's roster moves. We need a playing time tomorrow writer covering the American League Central. Right now, our co-GMs, Brent and Ray, are writing this one, and that means, well, let's just say we really need a playing time tomorrow writer covering the AL Central. You'll be writing 12 to 1,500 words every week, covering each team in the division with a forward focus on playing time expectations. We need an AL Facts and Flukes writer. Facts and Flukes is a signature offering on Baseball HQ and applying player metrics to assess whether the current performance of five players per week is for real. We need a Miners Prospects writer to synthesize scouting observations and minor league data into periodic articles that evaluate minor league players' likely future fantasy value. We're also looking for writers to help research and write short profiles of the just-promoted players who've hit the show for our daily call-ups feature. We always need research and analysis writers to pull apart the existing metrics and develop and test new ones, all while presenting actionable results for our readers. We need gaming strategy writers to provide fresh ideas on how to approach draft and auction strategies and new ways to evaluate players in various formats. We're looking for a content editor to help prepare articles for publication while maintaining consistency and accuracy. Previous copy editing experience is preferred for this one, but we really needs of this role be filled fastly. We need a tech team contributor to help manage all the data and tools on the site. Our tech stack relies on PHP webpages, MySQL database, Drupal, Amazon Web Services hosting, and, weirdly, Commodore 64s. Familiarity with HQ data and metrics is also important. Just kidding about the Commodore 64s. They work fine. Now, all of these openings are paid freelance positions with varying levels of time commitment. If you're interested, you can start by filling out the short online application at surveymonkey.com slash r slash bhqhire22. We're fast-tracking this process so we'll contact the most promising candidates right away and ask them to complete a sample writing assignment or task. And we are hoping to fill all these positions by the middle of April. Remember, that's surveymonkey.com r slash bhqhire22. And no, we're not looking for a Baseball HQ radio podcast, host smart guy. Apply today to be part of the best fantasy baseball website in the business, baseballhq.com. And remember, those applications are due tomorrow.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Peter Kreutzer from PatentAndCo.com, the Ask blog, ToutWars.com, and the Annual Fantasy Baseball Guide Magazine. Peter, welcome back to part two. Hey, Patrick. I know from reading a draft of Ron Chandler's book that you've been playing in a keeper league from pretty much the dawn of fantasy history. What is the league, and how long have you been in it?
1: Uh, the um, I started playing in 1981, 82. Started playing in 1982 in a league that started in 1981, the Stardust League, um, which started at Inside Sports Magazine, where Dan Okren wrote his first article about the rotisserie league um the, the year george foreman wasn't worth 36 dollars um and uh so it was uh, some of the writers um some people in the business side of the magazine and and we played in an odd funny league with a uh, 12 team mixed league with uh four hitting categories and three pitching categories and three uh, keepers from year to year and uh and that started me on this road of uh, playing this game.
0: And then you got into the American Dreams League, which is, uh, how did that work?
1: In uh, There was a guy named uh, Bruce Michelle in the Stardust League who uh, had been in the American Dream League from its inception in 1981. And he, uh, a guy got kicked out in I think in 91 and um, he asked me if I wanted to come in and i I did I was um, I hadn't played real the regular rotisserie rules and um, the opportunity to do that was it was exciting and I and I uh, and I, I switched over I, nowadays you would just say, oh, I'll do a second league but back then it was so time consuming just to know, like getting the information on any one league one league that the idea of playing multiple leagues, would mean having to go to the newsstand and get out of town newspapers for all the for all of them. So, um, I, I switched leagues at that point, and now I'm back in the Stardust League for uh, uh, starting last year, and um, and I'm also playing in that league. I went back to play with those guys after forty years. So.
0: So it was an unbroken uh, sequence for them. They they kept going even after you left. It didn't fall by the wayside as so many leagues do.
1: No, they kept going, and they're um, and they're, a lot of the original guys are still in. Some of some have left, but um, they're still going strong.
0: How about in the league uh, that you joined, the American Dream League? How many guys are still in that from when you first joined?
1: Most, although um, it's an older group, and we've had a. Sadly, a couple of guys die. So, um, but three guys die. That changed two teams, and those are really the only changes since the um, early nineties.
0: I'm curious about keeper leagues because we don't talk enough about them here at Baseball HQ Radio. And and since you you played in uh, at least the two that I know of, and maybe more since, I don't, are you in any other keeper leagues these days?
1: I play in the XFL. You see, there's the league. I would, I forgot the XFL is the. Um, so I, I I've had four drafts already and um and, that uh, that's a keeper league a mixed league keeper league that we play at first pitch um in Arizona
0: right and you do your kind of uh, there's a lot of keepers as I understand it in that league and in November you kind of flesh out your rosters and then there's a reserve round in in late winter something
1: next week we're, we're doing the reserve, oh, okay. 17, 17 round reserves um you get to keep farm guys, so which reduces the number of reserves you buy. We had, we generally have our auction in Arizona during the fall league, and um, you fill up your twenty-three man roster at that point. With for, from with guys who are on the twenty, the twenty-five man rosters, but they're whatever 26, 28, whatever it ends up being.
0: When you get openings, uh, sadly, through uh, somebody passing or somebody decides to quit or. Uh there's all kinds of reasons people leave, but how do you handle the turnover? How do you find new guys and what makes them qualify for, for joining your leagues?
1: Well, the um, one guy who joined because uh, um, somebody died was, he had been our auctioneer for like 20 years. He'd come every year and, and auctioneered for us and wouldn't come out to dinner afterwards, but just came and auctioneered and, went back to New Jersey. And, uh, and then when um, the opening came, we, we said, Well, we got to offer him the, the thing, but he probably doesn't want it. He just seems to really love auctioneering. <laughs> and he said, Yes, yes, I've been waiting all this time. <laughs> so, um,
0: so there's that.
1: Um, another, uh, another one was filled by a friend who knew that he was somebody was interested. I've had The league has a certain history and um, and a lot of fantasy baseball writers in it. So it's uh, so um, some other people have asked to be in it, but it's it's kind of like who can do it at the time ends up being an important thing
0: when I was first playing uh, rotisserie baseball, it was an American League only league. It was run by a guy. He was, I was a disc jockey at a radio station and he was in the, I was on the FM side. He was on the country radio side across the hall. And there's a whole story about that that I won't get into, but Gosh, when I had to when I applied to join up, because he said, "Do you like baseball?" You, you seem like you'd be a good guy, and uh, you know you, you're a friendly guy, friendly enough guy. So that that works. I had to go sit for two interviews. We <laughs> went to two different bars and sat with committees of the league, like three guys one time, three guys another, and they all cast secret ballots. It was like electing a pope. <laughs> I was watching the chimneys for the white smoke, and and finally I got into it. But over the years, it, it got so hard to maintain the league that when guys quit, we were like begging people to join, like we were giving subsidies so that they could join or, or, you know, tr- we had a rule that you had to draft from scratch and we always argued about whether they should be able to inherit the team of the guy who just left or, you know, select guys off it or whatever. Then it was a keeper league. And I think that was the nadir of the league because we, we got... You get tremendous amount of added turnover when you're taking anybody who will come in because a lot of times they come in, they do it for years, say, ah, this sucks, it's too much work, and they get out, or it's costing me too much because I've got a bad team, and bad teams in keeper leagues sometimes take a while to to climb towards the money. So um, there's an element of, will this guy fit in with the crowd? There's an element of, is, is this person enough of a fan, enough uh, of a baseball enough knowledgeable about baseball that he's going to be a good fit for the league. But what are the, if you were advising all those people listening out there how to acquire new managers, what are the right ways and the wrong ways do you think to approach it?
1: Gee, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I think the finding somebody who knows what the time commitment is to your particular league, if you have a, a league that requires lots of study and and competitiveness you want people who caught make call back or email back or um communicate that's the guy i replaced was a guy who had spent the whole year he, he made a team um he basically did the sweeney plan and he and then he said well now i'm set i don't really need to make any trades i'm gonna and um and people would call him and they wouldn't call them back and they kicked him out and um it was uh so i think communication is a big is a big skill somebody who understands what the time commitment is and how they'll handle that um and then you want people who are who are fun who can who can chat about baseball or write about right on the message board or the email skein or however you do it and um and those are personality things which i had a similar story when i joined the american dream league they said well you have to be interviewed and i went to a conference hall in a big midtown i don't i think newsweek magazine or something and um and i got grilled and and i and they let me in and i was very happy and then in, there was an opening a couple of years after that and um oh, it was a a terrible story where we actually kicked the guy out of the league while holding the league meeting in his office so he he, <laughs> he also didn't cut make phone calls and he um he said, Okay, well just pull the door shut when you leave, and he and he left and um, we finished the meeting. Um But then the next guy who came in was pushed by somebody in the league and he said, Oh, you know, that we don't need to go through all that anymore. Like this guy's a great guy. He's really um and, and when I went in, they said, No keepers for you. You don't get any keepers. The first year you have to pay your dues, no keepers. And it was like, like this guy, oh, he's such a great guy. Let, let's let him have the keepers from the team that he's taken the place of. And I was so – I was like – I'm still mad about it. But it was um, – <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, that's the sort of dynamic that happens. Like people decide whatever. They're going to do it one way until they do it a different way. And, um, and I'm not – you know, I'm friends with those guys. And he, he was a great guy. He's a good guy. So um, I'm not – so I'm still mad, but
0: it's it's all right. Yeah, the uh, idea of getting guys to recommend friends, I think, is something that I would recommend to anybody. But you should kind of try to sound him out a little bit about his knowledge of the game because we had guys who were recommended by their buddies and they came in and you know they they played together in hockey drafts and that was the that was the kind of calling card but hockey drafts are a completely different thing or were in those days there are now rotisserie style hockey drafts but a hockey draft was usually a points league like scoring points on the ice and just you just amassed as many as you could and that was the end of that and and like we had guys come into the league and like they didn't even know what the how the category scoring system worked we had to explain that to them and and they didn't know enough about baseball to balance the teams and the other drawback to friends is that especially in keeper leagues they come in and then the next thing you know they're doing constantly doing deals with each other but they'll never uh, respond or they rarely will respond to an offer from outside of their little group and at one point we had three guys we're all in this little cabal and trading guys around, and of course, I'm not saying there was collusion, but it looks like sometimes there is, and that creates bad blood and all that kind of stuff. So, I, I mean, we used to recruit. We tried to put an ad in the paper where I worked, and they rejected it because they said it was promoting gambling. And I worked for the place, and I went into the ad manager. I said, "It's not gambling; it's a game of knowledge and skill. These the, the players are just the guys that." that are the roulette wheel, uh, the roulette ball, basically. And he said, no, nah, we're not putting it in. We don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. Uh, fair enough. And then online, I think you can recruit online in, on various message boards and stuff. And I think that has democratized it a bit, but you still want to, we still had to find uh, guys who lived in, near us so that they could get into the, to the draft because we didn't draft online. I've noticed on Baseball HQ's message boards, Peter, that there uh, seems to be an increasing number of People who are in redraft leagues who are thinking about converting to keeper leagues, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but even if you haven't, what advice would you give to somebody who's who uh, to a league that wants to make that shift and go from uh, redraft to keeper?
1: I I think you can do it at any time. You just need to tell people before the draft. <laughs> Can't do it after the season starts, but um, uh. I, informationally, I think people should just be aware of what is involved with keepers, and I don't know if you need how much you need to educate them. They should be able to figure it out themselves. What um, what what it matters. I think um, in the traditional format of in a either an AL NL or even a, a fifteen mixed team mixed league. Um, you can just say before the season, we're going to keep this number of players. H- whatever system you come up with is i um, I found, I guess I can speak to this. I found that the complicated keeper systems that have contracts and players for one year and two years are, are kind of unwieldy and don't really get you a comparable bang for your Fuck! you have to put a lot more work into it you end up with situations where you're getting kind of screwed by it and, and it never even really feels like that great when you're not getting screwed so um in the the leagues the keeper leagues i play in it's basically you get a guy for one year as a keeper and then um and then and then it's out so you're you're getting to keep the best the best buys you had the previous year um and that's very simple Um, usually players who've been traded can't be kept and players who, um, or players under a certain price can't be kept if they're, um, or if they're under a certain price, they go go up to 15, let's say, uh, but I think simplicity is, uh, unless you are, unless you like want to play auto new simplicity of the keeper system is, um, is a benefit to the game.
0: I think so too. When I played in that American league only league, we had contracts, uh, the S2, S1 option year, and then you signed a guy and there was all of this stuff and it did confuse a lot of people. If I was recommending anything to somebody who was thinking about converting, I'd suggest doing, I think what you guys do in XFL, which is a player that you bought in year one, you can keep in year two plus five bucks. Uh, a minor leaguer that you promoted, you can keep him for year one and year two, then three bucks or whatever. But keep it real simple. But make the jumps big enough so that they're consequential enough that the player ends up back in the pool relatively early. One of the big drawbacks we had in this uh, American League league that I was in was all of the farm players that we had a, a a separate reserve draft just for farm players. We actually ran a farm system in a way, and they kept adding more and more guys to that until we had 15 18 farm players a piece and of course by that time you're getting all the good prospects in the American League the only ones you don't get are the ones in the National League and when they graduated we started them all at $5 for the first 2 years of their contract so Mike Trout $5 and and then you could sign him later on for $5 increases you could raise him up to like $35 for and hold him for the next 9 years and still make money every year at that time because he was earning $45, $50. Bucks. And I think one of the big drawbacks in keeper leagues, this is why I don't like dynasty leagues, is I think it's really important that everybody has at least one chance during a player's career to have Adam at, uh, in the auction. And, you know, if, if you're a big fan of Juan Soto and somebody's got him for 3 bucks on their roster, you just know, I'm never getting Juan Soto, and that kind of disappoints me. It, it takes a lot of the fun out of the game.
1: On the other hand um in the in the xfl the, the arizona fall league league where we do the five dollar increments for players who are bought and three dollar increments for players who are um on your farm team when they're promoted um the i had we uh alex Patton and i traded for mike trout when he was in the minors and however long ago that was we still have him he's 30 35 dollars and uh and well, uh, this is the first year we talked about maybe trading him, and we'll see how it goes. Um, he's still a bargain, but um, but we we kept him and Freddie Freeman, who we've had both had for all those years, and um, they're both in the mid thirties, and we're starting to run out of money for other guys. So it's uh, but we added, but then we added Wander Franco in um, last year, and so we'll have him forever, and uh, it's presumably and there's kind of this kind of feels good um that's the consolation that's the consolation you get to have Mike trout forever so it's uh you don't get to have one soto but you get to have Mike trout i don't know
0: everybody gets to have somebody i I know <laughs> i understand the appeal of that that you get to have a guy for his whole career keeps you involved in the league if nothing else a, a little longer if you know that you no matter what comes up, I know I'm going to have Juan Soto, so uh, you know it's something to look forward to if you have a bad year or something like that. But uh, yeah, you should think about it. And one of the th- one of the problems I think a lot of leagues have is it's one or two guys or maybe three guys who get together and they run the league and they don't talk enough to the other guys in the league, and all of us th- and they're constantly being caught by surprise when a guy goes, "Yeah, this league sucks. I'm out," because it's the first they heard of it. I mean, the guy may have been seething for three years and talking to the other guys in the league, but the leadership of the league wasn't canvassing everybody having meetings or having phone calls or whatever to try to make sure that everybody was, you know, still pretty happy with the format and stuff.
1: The, the communications is, is the uh, people don't have to be the best buddies in the world, but everybody has to like talk their baseball. You need to have a communication center where when something bad happens to your team, you get to say, Oh, hell. And, or, you know, maybe a little trash talk, maybe a little, We one tradition we have is the rules meeting, which is every year. Well, for a few years, we went, and we met at a Japanese restaurant in um, midtown and we, and the league would pay for the Japanese, the Japanese food. And it, I don't know. It would be like four hundred, five hundred dollars. But w- most of us were there, and one of us would win, and it would come out of the winner's share. But one year, the guy who lived in Florida won, and he said, "Where's this? Is like five hundred dollars short, short?" And um, he said, "Well, that's we, we have Japanese food." And he,
0: said, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "And you paid he said, for?" No, it. no, no,
1: no, no. So, so then uh, the guy who organized them started having them at his house, and he would make brunch and we would spend all day sitting around his living room and dining room table talking about the, the rules. We have procedures since zoom. We have like the people from out of town come in. On, well, we all meet on zoom because we haven't been in person, but um, it's uh, it is, it really helps bind the league together. And, and me and a couple of other guys really like to examine the rules and uh, and just, and, and, fine tune them and find ways to improve things they don't they're not always improved by that process and it drives some people crazy but i think it keeps us all talking about and we do it democratically there's always a, these votes there's like nothing gets rammed through there it's um and, and everybody's talking about those things and we we then have a history we have a history anyway but we have constant chatter and talk about um these about things that pertain to the league that um Keep it lively enough that we're all invested in it and and would all hate to see it disappear
0: when that first league I was in started out. we were all young and we were all single, so it, it was like twice a week you'd see six or seven of us go to there was one bar in town that had a satellite t v with one of those sixteen foot dishes on the top of the <laughs> roof, but they could get a lot of games, especially day games on the west coast and we'd go there and have pizza and beer and we'd watch the game and we'd talk uh, about baseball and talk about the league and discuss things about the league and make trade offers and stuff like that and and trash talk, all those kind of things. And uh, the other thing, and I've told this story before, I think, on Baseball HQ Radio, but our league, because this is pre-internet, so we would, uh, we ran our league through all-star stats in Binghamton, New York or someplace up a little bit upstate, and they would fax our weekly stats to a printer in town And he would make 12 copies. And then one of the guys in the league was a cab driver. And so on Tuesday afternoons at about, you know, three o'clock, he'd he'd whip by the printers, collect the uh, printed stats. And then he would take them back to his house and he had mounted a second mailbox on the front of his house. And he would just put them (laughs) in the paper bag and stuff them into the, into the, into his auxiliary mailbox there. And all the guys in the league would just at, three o'clock or three thirty in the afternoon we'd all congregate the guy's name was his name was barry boyd but we called him the squid for reasons i I don't understand and it would be like everybody be i'll see you at the squids you know and we'd all go and we'd all get our our stats and we'd all stand around in a little cabal on this guy's front lawn and we'd talk about oh look i'm three places up or whatever hey you should really think about trading and we'd have this colloquy of of our of our league with eight or nine guys standing on this guy's lawn until finally his wife said get these guys off my lawn and then we we you know got into the street and talked those were the days you know it seems odd that as communication technology got better actual communication in a lot of ways got worse
1: yeah it, it well that was a, you were in a great place to be able to have everybody in town when i joined the american dream league they told me that i was not allowed to leave town that i had to be in new york that they required everybody to be in new york you know most of the time like if you had to work or something but um but then people started moving to florida and to boston and um and now we're there's a, there's a handful of us in new york but um most people live elsewhere
0: one last kind of loaded question peter in keeper leagues many of the leagues are won or lost because of what has come to be known as dump trading where a non-contender will trade away his high price talent and end of contract talent and get back prospects and guys with low salaries and that kind of thing and the problem is it runs it creates a kind of animosity towards both sides of the deal from the opposite sides of everybody else and there's all it creates the possibility of collusion and all of those kind of things that are really difficult to police and inevitably it seemed in our league every three years somebody quit specifically because of a dump trade that had occurred that uh, I would have won if it wasn't for that dump trade, you know, kind of thing. And, and so they get mad and they leave. What can keeper leagues do do you think to mitigate the, the problems that are associated with dump trading? I think the,
1: the main thing is that there has to be a, a, a reasonable marketplace that if you make a bad trade, you get punished. And if you make a good trade, you get rewarded. And the problem with dump trades is that somebody makes a trade and there's no consequences for, um, for making the bad trade. This is something that um, came up in the XFL, which is kind of like a dynasty league. And after a year or two people started dumping, like even before the, like, as soon as the reserve draft was over, over in March, people were making trades that trading all their good stuff to other teams to try and get the best talent. Like they'd say, okay, I'm willing to be in last place for this year because I'm, I'm building up for next year. And some of us, me included, thought that, that made the game less fun. Like it was, but the prevailing, um, the group prevailed to say, that's the way we do it. And so teams do it but nobody ever feels like they got cheated nobody's nobody's dumping the consequences you come in last you you look bad on the lifetime standings for that but you're but you also look like you're building up a team and teams have done it and lost six years in a row and then all of a sudden have great teams in a more normal type league in the um american dream league we have a what we call the the butte so that the higher you finish in the standings or the lower you finish in the standings you lose keepers, you get fewer keepers. So if you're in the middle, you get seven, and then six, five, four, depending on whether you come in fourth or or ninth, third, and tenth, and so forth. Um, And we also have a penalty if you finish for, uh, you lose some fab if you finish with fewer than 35 points in the standings, so that if if you make a bad trade and you dump, there's a little bit of a consequence there. We adopted something similar like that in Tout Wars, mostly to give people a rationale for what they were going to do if they're making trades in the in in those one and done leagues. Um, it gives you a, a, a rationale I, for saying, "Hey, I, I need to get above the threshold, otherwise that penalty is carrying over to next year." Um, so I think things like things like that that create market incentives to do better or. And, and a little bit of a stick to keep you from doing worse. Help teams keep in mind that there is there are consequences for making bad trades. Um, and that's what a dump trade really is, is, a, is making a bad trade usually by indifference or um, because of indifference or irrationality, like um, because your friend says, oh, I'd really like to have that guy. And you don't see any reason why why not.
0: Yeah, that's one of the problems that arises, that's for sure. And and, uh, one of the things we did in our league to try to combat dump trading, what we eventually did was said you can't acquire a guy this year and keep him for next year at all. So any trade had to be this year for this year, period. And everybody involved in the trade went back into the pool the subsequent year, which eliminated dump trading by by actual uh, definition, but it also removed a lot of the fun of trying to build a team and so forth and it made it a little more difficult. One of the other mechanisms that we applied was in a 12-team league, at the start of the year, part of your fee was a $50 fee we called the lottery fee. And at the end of the season, teams 1 through 10 got their 50 bucks back and usually just put it towards their next year's entry. But teams 11 and 12 lost their 50 bucks to create a little pool of $100. And then we did an NBA-style draft. If you finished 5th, you got like nine chances to win if you finish six you got eight all the way down to the the guy who finished 12th who only had one chance in the whole in the whole pool to get his money back but it was a real disincentive to to deliberately trying to go backwards and the other thing was for a long time we ran our farm draft straight bottom to top and we turned that around that said if you finish fifth you got first pick in the next year's farm draft down to seventh and then four three two one at the end and both of those things worked a little bit because they the same thing that you're talking about is they disincentivized the, the approach that I'm just going to work my way to the bottom because there's actually a payoff for it in the first place. And also I get these, this talent for the subsequent year in the second place. So there are mechanisms, but.
1: And we do that in the American dream league too. First draft pick, first reserve round pick goes to the fifth place team and it goes down to one and then four, three, two, one.
0: Um, because you want to create incentives for them to keep trying and that, i think that's what major league baseball was trying to do the nba tried to do it uh, as well because it's no fun when people aren't trying in the league especially if somebody in with the league that you're talking about where they'd make all their deals on you know april 9th and then just say i'll see you guys next year at the draft and uh, you know go and go and watch uh, some other sport or will Manage some other league or something like that. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from Ask Rotoman and Tow Wars. And Peter, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at boons and bane's for this year. We're coming up to opening day. Let's start with the the boons. Who's an American League batter you think could be a boon?
1: I, I feel like Austin Hayes is um, is like getting uh, knocked a little bit, and that there's a, more talent there. He's he's obviously. Uh, got some plate discipline issues, but he's got power. He's, he, um, he's going to play. And I think he's, he's just going too cheaply in, in leagues. And, uh, that makes him a, something of a boon.
0: In the national league, who's a better, who could be a boon.
1: Well, that, I mentioned Jonathan Villar before. I think that he's, um, the playing time issues are knocking him down a little bit and he's, uh, a power speed guy. And, uh, who qualifies at third and se- and short, I think. And you shouldn't pay a lot for him, but it, he shouldn't be super cheap either.
0: You know, another guy who fits that kind of definition, this is somebody I picked up in American League Tout uh, last weekend on the recommendation of Gene McCaffrey is Jorge Mateo in Baltimore lot of playing time considerations but when you look at that Baltimore infield it's not like it's uh you know the 76 Reds or anything <laughs> I mean there seems to be there's lots of opportunity uh over to the mound we go how about an American League pitcher who's a boon?
1: so um I, I've got could I could I do break up the order a little bit here just sure, to yeah. s- I've got um the American League boon being um Luis Severino who has not played for like three years and is being discounted, even though he seems to be healthy. Um, So it it seems to me he's going for less than he, he he, there's a good chance. He's going to be a lot better than what his price is in the national league. Luis Castillo is in exactly the opposite position. He came back from injury, pitched 180 innings last year, got better as the year went on um, after a, a terrible beginning of the year. Um, but now he's got injury concerns again, and uh, and he's he's going like, not quite the ace that he used to be, but he's going like a somebody who people have confidence in. and I don't think they should.
0: So we'll mark him down as a bane. Uh, who's a boon pitcher in the National?
1: Degrom. I mean, uh, there's no question to me. Degrom is the is the prize at, at you know the price in the in the low 30s in an a, in an NL only league. Um, it's not. Totally risk free, but the amount of risk that's being priced in is too much.
0: Over to the baines, we'll go now. These are players who are not going to provide the value that they cost, uh, or otherwise cause problems for your roster. Who's an American League batter? Who's a bane?
1: The guy. The guy I see. You know, I just think people have too much faith in his um, Teoscar Hernandez. He's um, he's obviously a fantastic power hitter, but he's um, he's got. Plate issue, plate discipline issues. He's a, a guy who broke out when he was 29 years old. Um, guys, guys like that don't usually. Sometimes they do, but usually they don't age well. And people are paying for him as if he's like Juan Abreu in his prime, and that's that seems crazy to me. But not, I mean, not super crazy. But a few dollars over what he should go for is like.
0: And that's the definition of a bane. Who's a National League batter? Who's a bane?
1: So I've got Mookie Betts and Brian Harper in this category because, um, Betts obviously the injuries last year didn't help, but, uh, I think it's hard to figure him to go back to running the way he once did. And, um, and Harper was like a $35 guy for all those years and, and worth it. I mean, it was not a bad choice there, but now that people are paying $40 for him and, and they only leagues and he's, um, that's an MVP price. He's an MVP, but he's not probably not going to be the MVP again. I think that there's a little too much headroom priced in there.
0: Back to the mound. Who's an American league pitcher who could be a Bane?
1: I, this is, I don't know. I, maybe because I tried to trade for this guy uh, in, uh, in in a league over the winter, but, um, Alec Manoa is being priced as a, as like a ACE type pitcher, not a, a, a young ACE, but, um, there seems to be a lot of faith in him, and 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 he's kind of like with Shane McClanahan. They were the inexperience is not being priced in. I think um, I would be just a little bit wary I, I, of of going the full the full price on either of those guys. Um, I, th- I think you wouldn't be unha- you shouldn't be unhappy having them, but you're definitely taking a a risk bidding them up into the high teens.
0: And do you want to add another pitcher, Bain, to Luis Castillo?
1: I don't know, I'll stick with Castillo. I, it's, um, I mean, there's, a, there's going to be a lot of them, but sure. I, we, I, don't, I don't know who they are just
0: now. Peter Kreutzer's Boones, Austin Hayes of Baltimore, Jonathan Villar of the Cubs, Luis Severino of the Yankees, and Jacob deGrom of the Mets. I've heard of him. Over to the Baines, uh, Teoscar Hernandez of Toronto, Mookie Betts and Bryce Harper from the Dodgers and the Phillies, Alec Manoa from Toronto, and Luis Castillo from Cincinnati. Peter, remind our listeners where they can keep up with you.
1: Well, you can find me at and Co. dot com. Um I'm there most days. Um, and I sometimes post at blog.askrotoman.com. Um, and uh, you can find my magazine, The Fantasy Baseball Guide, on quality newsstands across America and Canada, um, usually at Barnes & Noble, and, but sometimes in the drugstore and, and grocery stores. That's The Fantasy Baseball Guide, two thousand 22 professional edition.
0: And it includes a lot of interesting write-ups by uh, certain I'm other like, people. Let's say,
1: yeah. Let's say like Patrick himself. Yeah. Just thank you, Patrick.
0: Writing up those little blurbs. I, I think I do about 20 every year and it's how I get my fantasy baseball season started. I know fantasy baseball research time has come because uh, Peter's Magazine is looking for blurbs and, and it really f- helps you focus in on what you're looking for and it's a real great help and it's certainly the magazine as a, an early entrant into the fantasy baseball research world every year is, is a great resource uh, and one that I really highly recommend uh, Peter, as I said, I knew this was going to be interesting, it was interesting and fun and, and uh, fun looking back and looking forward, all great stuff thanks so much for helping us out and we'll talk to you again during the year
1: Thanks, thanks for having me, Patrick, and uh, have a great holiday.
0: That's Peter Kreutzer from patentandco.com, the AskRotoman blog, toutwars.com, and the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 11 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Peter Kreutzer from PatmanCo.com, the Ask Rotoman blog, ToutWars.com, and the Annual Fantasy Baseball Guide Magazine. Peter's a longtime fantasy baseball expert, a terrific writer and editor, and a really great guy. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook. And on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Pocket Cast or iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. That helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be taking a two show hiatus as Lisa and I have a 25th anniversary vacation to the Dominican Republic. So we'll be back again on Friday, April 8th with a big opening day news and comment edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday the 8th and so long for now.